Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So I kid you not, the Bible app's most popular verse of 2019 was one that we just read. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you think any of the people who were highlighting, bookmarking, and sharing that verse last year had any idea how incredibly handy it would be for the year 2020? Since virtually the beginning of this year, we've been witnessing catastrophe upon catastrophe and loss upon loss. Some crises have been very public and experienced by many. The global pandemic, the isolation of social distancing, the worldwide protests and civil unrest after the killing of George Floyd. But of course, we're not getting a break from more personal suffering. I know many of your stories and you're dealing with lots of different kinds of heaviness addictions, mental health challenges, breakups, serious medical issues, the death of a loved one, or maybe it's just a significant longing that remains unmet. The depth of pain which so many people are experiencing in the world right now is unfathomable. And even our happy moments, graduations, weddings, baptisms, cross-country moves, job promotions, a new school year, though no less joyous, have a very different feel because we can't quite enter into them in the same way as before COVID. We can't celebrate with each other in embodied tactile ways. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of chances to practice not being anxious. So in the midst of all of this, I've been spending time in the writings of Paul, a man well acquainted with trials of various kinds, imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecks and the like. He's been through a lot. But the school of suffering isn't wasted on Paul. We don't get the impression that he's a, I'm just going to wait and duck and cover until everything passes over kind of guy. No, in our reading today, we get the sense that he's used everything that's happened to him as fuel for teaching him the secret of contentment. Writing to the Philippians from prison, facing potential execution, he has the fortitude to say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the phrase that's just been ringing in my head is, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What in the world is Paul talking about here? What does he mean by contentment? The Cambridge Dictionary defines contentment as being pleased with your situation and not hoping for change or improvement. So Paul says he's content, but surely he's not pleased with his situation, is he? Unless Paul is a masochist and he doesn't care what happens to him, or maybe he's a stoic and he's just become impervious to life's circumstances, or maybe there are tones of Buddhism or Eastern religion where nothing's bad and nothing is good, everything just is. Does Paul really not care if his circumstances don't change for the better? Furthermore, is this what God is inviting us into? To be pleased with a raging global pandemic, not hoping 
for societal change in areas of injustice and inequality, not looking to mend the fragmentation of various divisions in our society. No, of course not. So what does Paul mean when he says he's content? The word that Paul uses here actually means self-sufficient. And Stoic philosophers use this word to describe someone who discovered a personal warehouse of riches from within that would get them through any circumstances. But Paul turns this word on its head by saying, I've learned how to be self-sufficient. I've learned how to make it through any and every situation by uniting myself to the one who is all-sufficient. I've gained independence from the world through dependence on God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm self-sufficient, and by that, I mean I'm God-sufficient. But how does God's sufficiency manifest itself in the life of a Christ follower? I think Paul gives us a good glimpse of it in verse 7, where he describes a peace that passes all understanding. This isn't the peace of being justified with God by faith in Jesus, although that's presupposed. And this isn't a peace that's just an inner equilibrium, although that's here too. The peace Paul is describing is the very tranquility of God's own eternal being. The serenity that's just part of God's nature and something we're welcome to share. This kind of peace isn't the removal of unpleasant circumstances. It's the addition of God's presence in our lives, which is no doubt why in chapter 3 Paul says, compared to knowing Jesus, I count everything else as rubbish. But how did Paul gain this peace? How did he learn the secret of God's sufficiency? I think there are lots of answers, but he lays out some pretty good suggestions in verses 4 through 9 of Philippians 4. In these verses, I see Paul encouraging the Philippians and us to do three main things. And kids, these are all going to start with a C, so listen and see if you can catch them all. <laughs> the first thing Paul tells us to do is to celebrate. In verse 4, Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice we're to celebrate who God is in any and every situation. And you know what I love about Paul's instruction here? When does he tell us to rejoice? Well, before we even ask God for what we need. So that means we're rejoicing in God long before we get an answer to our prayers. But how do we do this? How do we celebrate God before we know he's going to meet our needs? That's like praising the chef before you take a bite of the food. But if you trust that the chef is going to take care of you with an amazing meal, you can thank them preemptively, even if you don't know what's on the menu. And we can trust God because he's a good father, and Jesus says he loves to give good gifts to his children. But even when we don't get what we want or what we think is best, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. Now, Sometimes this truth can sound cliche or even hollow. For example, oh, the people at the paint store gave me the wrong paint color, but God used it for good because I like what they gave me even better than what I picked out. And that's not what we're talking about. People use this verse in all kinds of twisted ways, and we should stop doing that. But let's not allow the misapplication of God's word 
to strip God's word of its real power in our lives. We're talking about Joseph being sold by his brothers and imprisoned in Egypt for 12 years saying, you meant all this evil against me, but God meant it for good. A verse that I hear quoted on a weekly basis at the women's Shakopee prison, before COVID that is. And Paul says this at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, yeah, I'm in prison, but because of that, the gospel is advancing. People are more bold to speak without fear. And obviously our biggest display of God's ability to make all things work for good is in the crucifixion of Jesus. While others see the cross as the biggest defeat, the most despicable low, a staggering display of weakness, we see it as the greatest act of God's love, power, wisdom, glory, and faith. Now, before I move on, I want to be careful here. I don't think that just because Paul tells us to celebrate God and don't be anxious, that doesn't mean that we're never sad and we never experience anxious thoughts. That's unrealistic. We're human. We don't praise God for our hard circumstances, but we praise God for getting us through. And the anxiety that Paul is talking about here isn't a normal, everyday kind of anxiety. It's the all-consuming, pit of your stomach, tear you to pieces kind of anxiety that threatens to take over your life. And God doesn't want us to be crippled by that kind of worry. So what do we do first? We celebrate God. The second encouragement we have from Paul is to contemplate, to think about good things. Have you ever been able to stop thinking about anxious or depressing things just by telling yourself to stop thinking about anxious and depressing things? It's like telling a toddler not to put their finger in an electrical socket. The more you fixate on the socket, the more they want to put their finger in there. What's better is to distract and redirect the child with an age-appropriate toy. And I imagine this is what Paul is telling the Philippians and us to do here in verse 8. Don't fixate on the problems and challenges you're experiencing. Fix your attention on what is true, what is honorable, what is just, pure, lovely, commendable, things of excellence, worthy of praise. But whereas a distraction might be just a mirage, just a blip to get our minds off the reality of pain, the things Paul commends to us are the really real, the ultimate reality. Pain and suffering are real, but they don't have the final word. So how do we train our imaginations in godliness to outrun our present circumstances? Whatever is ugly, bad, and unjust, God's beauty, goodness, and justice will outlast it. I think it helps us to zoom out, to think about the biggest, deepest things possible. Who are we? Why are we here? Well, there is a God, and he made us in love for himself, and the world has turned away from him. But at infinite cost to himself, he's come back to the world in Jesus Christ, and he's begun the work of restoration, and someday he will put absolutely everything right. The more we think about those things, the better we feel. Last month, I was walking around the lake with Jenna. Shout out to the Restoration Ladies Walking Club. And Jenna, who's a professional French horn player, told me that when the pandemic first hit and all her upcoming performances were canceled, she gave herself a week to sulk, but no more. 
She began thinking about what really matters in life. She began contemplating things that are true. Her worth isn't found in her ability to perform. She began contemplating things that are lovely. Her identity is secure. Her life is in God. Lake Nokomis is still beautiful. No pandemic can take that away from her. So she allowed this season to grow in her God sufficiency, Jesus dependency, unshakable peace. She wasn't distracting herself with wishful thinking. She was outrunning her despair and anxiety with the power of godly contemplation. So we celebrate, we contemplate, and lastly, we connect. Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. Connect your interior life with your exterior life. Let your rejoicing and contemplation express themselves through action. We're mind, body, heart, and soul creatures, so put flesh on all those good things you're contemplating. Practice honor. Practice justice. Practice purity. Practice love. But how can you practice those things without involving others? You can't. And in this way, not only are you connecting your inner and outer life, you're connecting yourself to others. So are you anxious? Are you worried? Connect yourself to the body of Christ and receive the love and encouragement of God our Father through your fellow brothers and sisters. We're launching new life groups this fall, and we'd love to have you join us. As a quick aside, isn't it interesting to think about how countercultural these three things are? Usually when bad things happen, we often blame God. How can God be real if this is my experience? And then we rehearse and rehash all our difficult circumstances until our suffering becomes our identity. And then we use worldly distractions to take our eyes off our pain, which only lasts for a little while, and it usually involves some sort of addiction, disconnecting our bodies and souls, and then leading us to disconnect from others. In contrast, we who follow Jesus celebrate God because we can trust him, always. We contemplate truth, justice, and love because they're going to outlast our present suffering and we connect what's going on in our hearts and our minds with everyday life. And in exchange, we get the peace of God, not always a resolution to our circumstances, but the presence of God in them. So can we be content in the year 2020? If we're talking about the Cambridge dictionary definition of being pleased with our circumstances and not hoping for a change or improvement, then no, obviously not. Christians should be the most discontent people, right? We actually know what God's plan is for human flourishing. We know how far off track we are. And the world needs more people like yourselves who are awake to the reality that we're not living into the abundant life God has for us. But I'd make the case that in order to engage, and certainly in order to sustain our engagement in these discontented places, we need to be content in God. We need God's sufficiency and union with Christ. What a gift would this be to the world that is so hurting to be a people of contentment, doggedly, but with a non-anxious presence, contending for God's peace in the world. 
So the only other time Paul uses this word for sufficiency is in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And in closing, I would just like to pray it as a blessing over you all. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Father, may we be a people marked by God's sufficiency, gained through celebration, contemplation, and connection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.